Hello everybody and welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? With me in my fellowship this time is my good friend Baz. How are you doing there Baz? I'm alright. If I'm in the fellowship, who are you and who am I? Just to get that straight from the off. Well, I think of you as a Sam Gamgee. I don't know whether you were thinking more Gimli or perhaps Legolas, I don't know. <laughs> I'll take it, seriously. I, was just, I went through the options very quickly in my head. I thought, this is as good as it's going to get. It could have been worse, couldn't it? Yeah. yeah. I could have said Boromir, but you might not have survived the whole cast. So I wanted to give you a character the last to the end, at least. And uh, we mentioned this, of course, because this time we have a special guest, uh, an internationally renowned game designer you might know from Lex Arcana or Edge of Conan or many other things, but of particular interest from RPG circles is the main designer of the One Ring RPG, Francesco Nepitello. How are you doing, Francesco? Fine, thank you. Hello, everyone. Good. Delighted to have you with us. So... I guess, first of all, the obvious starting question, given that there's a new Kickstarter for the second edition with Free League, that's done rather well, I think we can say. It's done moderately well so far the Kickstarter. I don't know what it is, something like... At time of recording, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 10 million <laughs> Swedish krona or something, probably close to a million dollars. A million Swedish krona. It's a lot of money even in pounds, isn't it? Even in pounds, it counts as it's good cash. a lot of money. <laughs> Yes. So you must be feeling pretty pleased with that. Is that kind of, uh, was that an unexpected journey in itself, how well it did just so quickly? Yeah, to a limited extent, it was a surprise. I mean, I was hoping for, for a big success, but my expectations were set at a lower bar. Just to give you an idea, uh, Free League, uh, Free League's most successful Kickstarter before the One Ring was Twilight 2000, and they had a very good run. We actually think technically we still have to beat them from the point of view of the number of backers, but the the, the total amount is uh, superior in our case. But I, I was setting that as the bar to to eventually match or beat, and basically from the point of view of the funding, we got them in two days, and and we're getting the number of backers by now that we're I think on the fourth day of the Kickstarter. So. I'm absolutely floored by by the excitement of, and by the, the enthusiasm of the fans. Yeah, I I'm hoping I think it's a sort of reward for having you know pieced uh, a few things together well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's putting together a game that built a good following along the years. Hopefully for good reasons. Like mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully for a good design and whatever. Plus a company that is absolutely on the rise. Mm. So I, I think that in the end, it was a decision that I really strongly was behind. I, I wanted them because I, I was a fan in the first place. And I really thought that the One Ring was uh, finding the right home with them. So it seems it was a good guess. Yeah, it's, it's definitely done very well. I think a lot of us in the community were sort of like a little bit sad when the announcement came that, uh, the, that the Cubicle 7 kind of thing was finishing and we thought, oh, what's, what's the future of this game? Because, you know, like you said, there's a lot of good feeling towards it. So when when we heard it was going to be free league, I just like naturally back everything they produce because I can't help myself. It's always good stuff, you know, well-produced and looks lovely and the games are great. So, yeah, the, the marriage of uh, your game with, with free league seems definitely a, a great step forward. I think... The One Ring for me, if we can talk about the the original design of the game, it was it's that first game for me that uh, sort of took the source material and really emulated it very well. Whenever there's a sort of general question about what RPG is there that that represents the source material well in, in sort of game format, that's the the example I always use of the One Ring in case of 
Um, you know, it goes through journeys, which the characters do. You've got your fights, you've got your social interaction. It's got those different pillars, much as D&D says it has its three pillars of, you know, exploration and combat. Whatever. Like, the One Ring really brought that to life. Is that um, Was that something of a design goal for you when you set out like, with the property? Because that must have been quite daunting initially to take something so well-known and, and close to people's hearts and produce a game for it. Was was your heart in your mouth when you started? And, and what were your design goals when you went along this journey? Well, yeah, it was, of course, a very daunting project. But uh, when I came to it, uh, that was exactly the design goal, the idea of making really uh, the game click with the with the theme. Uh, because as a player, I had relatively bad experiences with other games based on the same world. I'm not dissing on, I mean, disrespecting any of those titles, but I mean, Middle-earth role-playing by Iron Crown was a masterpiece on, on in its in its time and was hugely popular and still is very fondly looked at by, by fans for the sheer amount of stuff that was produced, maps and whatever. But from my point of view, I, I've probably always been uh, a purist, a purist of sorts uh, from the point of view of thematic games, so when I played Middle Earth for playing, I said, I, I thought, yeah, I'm enjoying myself, but I'm not really playing there. I'm not really in Middle Earth, in my opinion. So uh, my goal was really to do that. To to what what I need to do in a game to 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 achieve that to achieve to achieve that feeling that we're playing in a game that is actually set in Middle Earth. I was coming from the experience, you know, that we had uh, starting from 2004 with the, the War of the Ring strategy game that uh, me and my co-designer Marco Maggi and Roberto Di Meglio designed. It, 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 I don't know if you're familiar with it, mm-hmm. the huge sprawling game that tells the whole story of the Lord of the Rings from the point, mainly from the point of view of the clashing armies plus all the, the, the heroes traveling to Mount Doom to destroy the ring. So we were you know, knee-deep, probably more up to this with, you know, with the uh, lore of, of the Lord of the Rings because we really combed every page of, of, of the stories to to see what we could do to, to transport, to port into a strategy game. So we had tens, uh, we had hundreds of cards to, to, to do. So we were very much, when we started working on the One Ring, we were really very into deep, with that, so from that point of view, we started with a sort of a, of an advantage over someone who, who tries to tackle the subject matter from from scratch. And I think that also as a role player, I always played very very thematic games. My my favorite games were always games like, for example, King Arthur Pendragon mm-hmm. by by Greg Stafford, or or Call of Cthulhu. So games that uh, have their uh, theme first, right. uh, and everything else must follow. And and then, as a last element that I think was good in in giving us the right perspective was that coming from a long career of designing board games, you learn that a game is its rules. There's nothing else. Meaning that the experience that players will get from a game is dictated by the rules and by the rules only. You cannot show a fancy cover and pretend that people are going to play that game in the cover if the rules inside do not tell you how to do that. So by designing designing the role-playing game, we we were exactly trying, I mean, we had that in mind. 
uh, if we are putting something inside this among these pages, needs to be something that has uh, a specific goal to, to represent the theme. And as you said, that's why we have articulated the rules in different, in different pillars like journeys, councils, and combat uh, in addition to character creation because we feel that these are the elements that are modular and that combined together create uh, stories that uh, are, hap- uh, the, with the, uh, I mean, if, if combined in the right way, help you in creating a story that feels like it's Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Then again, just if I can add one thing, the other thing that we did, uh, and again, this comes a little bit from the, our experience with the War of the Ring strategy game, is that uh, we wanted to be 100% true to the sources, uh, meaning that every word and every element that is in the game had to come from the stories themselves. So. Uh, we couldn't have a game with, I don't know, strength, dexterity, constitution, charisma, because many of those words are not in the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit. So we were, every word that we had in the game were, was researched and looked for in the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings to see if they had a match and if there, there was enough representation. And if there was some synonym for that word that was, was used more, in the stories, then we had to to use the other word. Mm-hmm. They would recognize the game in the stories if we did that, and and it seems that it worked. People looking at the character sheet for uh, for uh, the One Ring recognize even if they don't see the logo, they recognize it's a Middle Earth mm. game. No, that's very true, and I think that that's good that there's, there doesn't seem to be um, any kind of like extraneous stuff. I, I'm trying to think of how to phrase it, but. Like when we interviewed uh, one of the D and D designers, for example, he said if you wanted to play the greatest cooking show in the world, you could use D and D for that. And like, I guess you can, but <laughs> there's not a lot in the book that tells you how to do that. Whereas I think uh, just by playing what's in the One Ring gives you the things that you need to emulate those stories. If you know what I mean, it's not got extra rules like for things that don't happen in stories necessarily. Or you see, I can see the the sort of focus on what you're trying to achieve. You know, there's a there's a downside to this. The downside is that we could not have things that normally people look for in a fantasy role-playing game. That was a price that we dared to pay because everyone was wondering if, for example, we would have had uh, magic users in the game. Mm -hmm. And we decided not to uh, because even if with a very, very loose interpretation of sentences written by Tolkien, the stories you might expand and, and consider that there might be, might have been more magic users than just the study, you know, uh, Gandalf, Radagast, Saruman, and so on. But you don't see them in the stories. You don't hear anything about them in the stories. You don't hear any, there was the possibility that they might have created orders of magic users somewhere, but you don't see them. And in the moment you do something like that, people playing the game immediately are snapped out of the actual feel for Middle Earth. They know they're playing in a parallel uh, alternate version of Middle Earth that is not the one they find in the books. So that was one thing that it was a challenge that that ultimately we won because the game uh, was not as successful as D&D, but uh, first edition had its own cult following and, and was very, very well received by 
by by the people that encountered it. So I'm I'm pleased. I'd rather have a game like that that is played by a smaller number of people rather than dilute the thing and just and just profit from you know the brand, uh, the Lord of the Rings, and 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 just have another type of game there. So. To uh, give you a kind of a, a backhanded compliment here, Francesco, it's um, with the rules for the One Ring. It's a game I've never heard anything but praise for, absolutely praise all the time. But equally, I've never seen it used in any other settings. And I think that's a testament to the, to the quality of how well the mechanics fit the story of Tolkien. Because I'm not saying it can't be done, but people don't do it. And I don't think it's... I suspect it's because it's so woven into this type of stories that you want to tell that you can't just lift it out and put it on a spaceship. But there are so many other games where that's almost your first instinct when you find something interesting mechanically, uh, is that you want to put it into a setting of your own. We, we all hack games. We're all games designers at heart, aren't we? People don't do that. There's a certain reverence for the mechanics in the one ring. Uh, you gonna, maybe you know, maybe you hear otherwise. Maybe there is somebody playing it on Jupiter in a, in a space station. But I don't <laughs> think that's true, is it? Yeah, I think that the I think that the game works as the sum of its parts rather than uh, an isolated mechanic. I actually had some designers that asked me for permission to use some mm. components of the rules in their own game. I mean, there's a there's a game that is aimed to kids that is called Magisa, I think that was developed by a Brazilian uh, designer that has something to do with it, but. It's even funny that they asked me because uh, if you're just taking inspiration from a game and you're using one of the many mechanics that are in there, you don't need to ask permission to anyone. That's the, the that's the you know the fundamentals for any game designer <laughs> to steal from the best, <laughs> <laughs> and we all do. And I mean, I, I had of course my own list of inspirations to to draw from, so. Yeah, I think that's it. It's the, the fact that everything seems to be just right for that. Uh, I think that the, the first, the one time that I heard that it seemed to be a very nice fit for another theme was a guy that made um, a survival zombie game. I was going to mention that. Uh, so, yeah, so using the the, uh, the idea of the group of, of survivors and having and having stuff like hope uh, in a different way to to mm. to keep track of you know slowly going into madness and stuff like that it's an irony that uh last year we designed a game yeah zombie side game so a zombie survivor game <laughs> that is going to be out in a while so it's interesting but yeah i think that's that's the you're right in saying that the the, the parts mm. are interlocked in a way that you can probably take one, take another. Uh, even if, yeah, there's one thing. I mean, I, I cannot pretend to have, intent, have invented anything, but uh, the One Ring, I think, made popular again to give a structure to downtime. Yes. I was taking full inspiration from Greg Stafford's Pendragon and the winter phase. And yeah. I didn't hide it in any way <laughs> so much that our own is called the fellowship phase. <laughs> and in Pendragon is the winter phase. And I came full circle because now in the one new edition, we have the Yule phase. Uh, so it's the winter phase. <laughs> 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 
Yes. But now there's so many games that are using it much, much more prominently than in the past. So it cannot be just the case that, uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that, of course, they looked at that. I know for some of them that they were inspired directly by because Warhammer 4th edition by Cubicle 7 mm-hmm. uh, has uh, a whole slew of endeavors to, to be done during downtime that I know for sure because I was told by, by the developer that they took inspiration from the One Rain. And as a consequence, also the new age of Sigma. Uh, but for example, also Delta Green, the excellent Delta Green by by the uh, Pega Publishing guys. They uh, used to be Pega Publishing. Yes, Arc Dream now. Yeah, exactly. Yes, Shane Ivey, uh, one of the designers, is a huge fan of the One Ring, and he wrote for the game also because he was one of the, the writers for the Rohan book. And so and and he and he used that and he said that it was because he had a good experience with the uh, fellowship phases in, in the one ring that he put them in delta green so there is a there is a legacy of, of things that are being used but no more no less than than uh, other games that have you know broken a certain level of popularity games that are being played are bound to to have an influence on on designers and game systems so Perfectly fine and happy. <laughs> so, so talking of uh, design development and all the rest of them, uh, we were speaking to John Harper uh, not so long ago, and he was saying no design is ever finished. Obviously, you know, as soon as you've published a book, you want to change it. And this uh, this new edition of the One Ring is obviously going to be a new edition, so there's going to be some changes. Given that your your first game was uh, so perfect as we've described, what could possibly <laughs> be changed to make it even better for this new edition? <laughs> <laughs> well, the game wasn't wasn't perfect, but and especially it grew with with the supplements. Uh, so uh, we added stuff to it uh, gradually, and and not every addition worked seamlessly with the rest uh, because it wasn't designed from the ground up. So w- one thing that we certainly took the occasion to do was to to have a good look of everything that we created for the game and see if we could, you know, smooth it, mm-hmm. polish it, and just make it uh, fit with the rest in a, in a better way. And also to get rid of any baggage that was not necessarily needed. You know, there's a the expansion mindset is that I, we're giving you stuff to play with that is not really necessary because it's an addition. Uh, but you might be happy to have it. A consistent games design is concerned. It would be better to be able to have everything fit more properly rather than just be built one thing on top of the other. So I think that that, that's the main thing that we did was to to have a look and get rid of some stuff. Also, there were a few mechanics that we didn't realize that could be made to, to work better together by just applying some simple changes so we con- we made a work uh, consolidation work yeah putting a few things together having one thing instead of two that work very similarly and stuff like that cool have you, have you got any um, examples you can share i'm aware we're still aware a way off actually publishing the game or is there anything you could give our listeners that might get them excited about some of the changes that have happened sure yeah, I've been dropping a few things here and there, so I'm trying not to repeat myself. So maybe uh, to have something new that I haven't written on a forum or somewhere. I think 
that one of the things that we consolidated the most is the presentation of the what we call the heroic cultures, so the character types. With the previous edition, we uh, spent a lot of space, a lot of words, to give examples of, of backgrounds and stuff like that connected to, to a limited amount of raw data. What we did, I mean, for example, we had as, uh, six types of attribute distribution that we enriched with having attached to it a background already made. Yeah. Now we got rid of that by taking into consideration that players are generally more advanced than that. And of course, they could use it as, as a starting point, but sometimes it was felt as limiting. So I think that the character creation in some ways is stripped down in compa compared to first edition. But at the same time, first, it's faster and is more has a better unity of effect. So you're, you're easily set to, to create your own thing rather than, you know, coping uh, hints and, and guidelines and so we, we leave the, the players to be a little bit, to, to have a little bit more freedom in, in coming up with their own vision of the character. That, yeah, that's an example. I can tell that, for example, with considering combat councils and, and journeys, combat is pretty close to what it is, to what it was in first edition. Uh, we liked the, 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 the concept behind the, the, the type of combat, the... the uh, I, I have to, to admit that that's the way I play games. I like to play games without grid, without miniatures. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's the, a little bit like the opposite of a role-playing game. Role-playing games, to me, have uh, a mental image that is mine and might differ from, from the one to, of the player to my right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and we don't need to have a, a specific reference that is common because uh, what is important to the game mechanics is common and shared by us but the way i imagine all that i'm free to do to to imagine it the way i want uh, so i don't need to be constrained by by uh, by a grade or or spatial positioning that is precisely precisely derived from the rules so so uh, we didn't change that and i think we streamlined a couple of things but that was more a matter of balancing uh, rather than coming up with something different. Where instead, uh, we learned a lot from the, the feedback from players for uh, journeys. Journeys in the original version came out of a specific need. And the need was to make the rules for encumbrance matter <laughs> <laughs> because in most games uh, you either are too punishing or people will just go around fully armored like tanks uh, so like like persian cataphracts <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what we needed was to give uh, a mechanical reason not to do that and to have players go around like the characters in the books mm -hmm. where if you if you remember i mean the only one wearing armor is gimli mm -hmm. and the other and the only and then the other one uh, carrying a shield is boromir all the others only have weapons with them they don't have basically any protective garments 
And so we decided that Journey Rules had to, to show that the, the burden you carry is something that is going to hamper you much more than it will help you. Uh, not specifically in combat, but in the general adventuring time. So that came from that. But the, the end result was excessively heavy from the point of view of rolling dice. Uh, it also had another limitation that was relying too much on one specific skill. That is one thing that you should never do. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, everyone will just get that skill. Yeah. And, and that's the end of the story. You know, it's like library use in, in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, library use, you you have to have that. Otherwise, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> so, so everyone has library use. So, and, and, and that was the, the, the matter with travel with, with uh, the One Ring. So we had to change that. And so we we gave a look at that. We saw that people was asking for more events to to enliven a journey rather than simply numbers to 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 tell you that you are going to be tired the next time you fight. We tried to put the two things together, and the third reason was for me, especially I really wanted that is to to have the players be able to to calculate how long a journey will be. Because normally that's that's the point. I mean, you want to get to a place by a certain time. You don't want to be late. <laughs> so, so these are the things that needed to be there, and we accomplished it in a much simpler way. And uh, I think that I never said this anywhere. We're having a play aid that is not 100% necessary, but it's going to be helpful. That is a journey log that you use to 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 draw your journey path. And and uh, we wanted it uh, also because eventually uh, it works as a sort of a journal mm. uh, for the for the for the players because you're going to remember much more what you did in the past sessions because you have your journey log that said you traveled from here to here and this happened and this happened and so that's uh, that's a, a whole new addition to the game. That sounds cool. I like those sort of in-game artifacts that help you out later on as well. Yes. It's kind of like in Pendragon where you write down all the things you did for your glory that you can look back at what you've done previously, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah I think one, one of the best things about Journeys for me was always the hazards when you roll an Eye of Sauron and something occurs and it could be you know anything from under, uncovering a troll to being harsh weather or whatever it might be. And it was always slightly disappointing, although you rolled quite a lot of dice. Sometimes you just wouldn't get any hazards, and that was the good bit. Like so, that was like you're almost disappointed if yeah, yeah, ill yeah. fortune doesn't visit you. You feel like you're being neglected in some way. That was absolutely the main feedback we got. In fact, we bundled together the whole thing in the new system of journey events. So we don't have events separated from hazards. Hazards are events gone bad. Right. Uh, but you can have the spectrum of negative things and positive things happening to you depending on where you are traveling across and but yeah there's more that happens uh, rather than less because yeah people wanted to 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 experience trouble rather than not (laughs) so Absolutely. So um, it sounds like uh, encounters, I think they were called and now called councils. Is the kind of, that's probably the one that got the least treatment, I think, out of the other pillars from the original game. Is that something that's been expanded upon a little bit? Uh, well, yes. Encounters. 
chapters uh, have been changed to to councils for you know to have a tighter connection to the theme first, but and second also because encounters in D and D is means combat. Mm. Uh, it's combat encounter, but for short, many people refer to encounters as a fighting scene. Sure. So uh, yeah, we we also we moved to use councils because it uh, gives you more the, the the impression that it's something that needs to be rather important hmm. and because we don't want you to use the council rules for every interaction with Lorenzo characters right. and that seemed to be the case in the past that people felt that you had necessarily to use uh, those rules to, to play gotcha. out a, an encounter and it's not really the case we're we're to blame yeah. actually because uh, the Marshbell, the uh, the sample adventure that was in the core, was in some ways misleading, and and also several of the uh, adventures that we published later had the same flaw. And the flaw was that we were using the encounter rules for opening encounters. When someone is coming to you to say, "Oh, can you please help? I need someone to go on an adventure," and you needed to play out the the, the council the encounter. And what was the point? I mean, he came to us to, okay. <laughs> to, to ask for our help. Why, why do we need to perform well? Sometimes you had to persuade them, didn't you? Like they're coming to you for help, but you need to convince <laughs> them to give them, to let you help them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So actually, rather than expanding, we clarified councils. And they're actually much, much simpler than before. Uh, because there was one thing that we realized by checking the rules again is that the rules were written giving you the idea that encounters were supposed to be like prolonged actions. But when eventually you got to the uh, encounters chapter, the rules were somewhat different. There were still some references in the prolonged actions section that said, made an example of an encounter. Yeah. So it was there was a conflict. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to just come, you know, full circle with that. And I said, why should we look for something different from prolonged actions? So I reworked pro the prolonged actions and the councils, and they worked gotcha. exactly in the same way. And still, it preserves the, the structure, the idea that in Middle Earth, meeting people, especially people of importance, is not, is not a simple thing. It's not something that you simply say hello and proceed to say whatever. So there is a structure to it, but uh, is done in, in complete accordance to to the prolonged actions. Just to make, a, 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 to, to make you uh, an example, basically it happens that players get a limited number of attempts and that's based on uh, a limited number of skill rolls and that's based on their renown. So it can be Valor or Wisdom, like it was in first edition. And, and then you, you, you can roll and, and you accumulate successes. And at the end of the council, you see how, what the number of successes you got uh, give you in relation to the import of what you were asking. So if you're asking for more complicated things or to... to to have some people do something that is very dangerous for dangerous for them and so on, it's going to be more complicated. So it changes uh, quite a lot in the flow of the game compared to the past because you just start talking 
and reinforcing your role playing with roles rather than thinking, oh, we have a number to beat. And that was the old yeah. version. So you don't think about that. You can just play. And at very, very much it in a nutshell. And, and that also what happens basically where with, with prolonged actions, where instead of being limited in your attempts by your renown, you are limited by a time limit. Because usually if it's a prolonged action, it's because, okay, we have to set up camp before nightfall. And the lore master tells you how many roles you have to, to achieve that. So these two things will work very well together right now. Francesca, you've done lots of work in board game design. You've mentioned uh, the War of the Ring already uh, as a grand strategy yeah. game and other ones too. What lessons, if any, did you bring from board game design into a role-playing game? Yeah, apart from what I said in the opening that, yeah, you have to, to be careful what you put in a, in a rule book. If, if it's a role-playing game or a board game, doesn't matter. Uh, don't put anything you don't expect people to use. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, and also don't trust people to, to make the right choice. Uh, like, okay, they'll figure it out. No, <laughs> players won't figure it out. You have to, to, <laughs> to be very clear to what you want, have them to do. That doesn't mean that you have to dictate the, the gameplay, but uh, you have to set boundaries. From the point of view of game design, well, in general, uh, even if people might disagree looking at my games, because especially games like War of the Ring are very complicated, but uh, one of the things I, I think of always is that less is more. Uh, seems always stupid to, to say that, but actually not, in a game where you have to keep in mind a lot of things, uh, rules uh, in a board game could be movement, could be uh, the abilities of characters in a role-playing game and stuff like that. The more stuff you have to keep in mind, the harder it is to play and the harder it is to, to actually have enjoyment uh, out of the game. Uh, let's make an example of something that is not something I designed. Uh, nowadays, it seems impossible for people to, to understand, to to, to think that a traditional role-playing game needs to have stuff like difficulties in it for actions, uh, levels of difficulty, okay? I think that the vast majority of people who played Call of Cthulhu never had any need for that. Even if the rules have uh, indications for modifiers, like minus five, minus 10, minus 20%, but I really don't think people use that. People just roll their percentage and look if they got under on their, on their character sheet without caring. Oh yeah, but the door was very sturdy. So, uh, or the guy was hard to, to, to persuade, should have been modified. Yes, you can do it, but the vast majority of occasions you don't. And other games that work perfectly fine, like King Arthur per Dragon, don't even have that. I mean, yes, there is again somewhere a small paragraph that said minus five, minus 10 to an action. But 99.9, or at least I, I'm talking about myself and the people I played with, we never bothered about that. It was a matter of actually having people enjoying the flow and, and rolling and telling the game master, I succeeded, I, I, I rolled the critical or whatever, without having to have this back and forth. Oh, yeah, but how was the difficulty? Oh, yeah, I got it. No, no. I, so it's something that ruins the flow to what? To what end to to have a sort of a granular 
simulation of oh yeah persuading this guy was harder than persuading this guy mm-hmm. i don't know i i think that that's one of the things again that there's a price you pay because you lose something but in the end the the game profits i mean benefits so much more from a smoother gameplay so so yeah i i always think twice if i have to add something that apparently adds to to the realism mm. or to the to the significance of the thing but it might eventually ruin it because you you're playing for something for half an hour where you could have played it in five minutes yeah. i remember an old discussion ages ago uh, about if role master was was the end all of all role playing games because it was the more realistic compared to to runequest or whatever uh, and i always felt amazing that someone could find more realistic a game that simulate and i'm talking about role master but in general simulation type of games that that could uh, represent a combat that in real life probably lasted two minutes and a half, took three hours on the table. How could that be more realistic than a game that, you know, spent five minutes on for the combat? So it's something that, you know, so I think that in general, you you never do wrong if you take out something, mm. uh, especially if you're not really sure it's, it's, benefiting the, the big picture so <laughs> and i guess you you could always go to if you were in a, in a debate in your mind you would look to the books you would look to what tolkien wrote to see well does it fit with that because uh, it must be yeah. the case that surely as a game designer of with some years under your belt you get trapped into designing games because you think they're clever or because you think it might be a good situation and then you realize well hang on that as you said before that we don't need to have zebra wrestling there are no zebras in the book <laughs> so let's look to the book to see if I need to put that rule in at all. Yep. And that's something that is hard to, to get sometimes because, for example, again, for this hardcore uh, strict adherence to the text, for example, we have a, a limited number of weapons mm. in, in, in the game. And that's traditionally something that role players look to, to see how many weapons you have mm. in your weapon list. And and every time people complains that we don't have war hammers, that we don't have other time type of blunt weapons, and again that's something that we felt it was not necessary because basically no no of the no one among the characters that we consider playable were actually using that type of weapons. So why should we make uh, this an option? where potentially, if it's a good option, would have a lot of people using them, mm. basically contradicting the text. So, <laughs> so it's, a, it's a hard path to follow, but we decided that we, we, we'd rather stick to it, rather stick to this sort of very strict representation. You know that, of course, the, the objection is easy because they can say, of course, of course, Tolkien just showed us a portion mm. of the world he was depicting. So there might have been people fighting with more hammers against wizards in another part, <laughs> in another part <laughs> of Middle Earth. But yeah, there surely was. <laughs> We're not playing in that area. You don't so. buy the one ring to play that game, do you? 
Exactly. The fault is with the customer in this particular instance. <laughs> I am tempted to write Wizards and Warhammers now. I think there's a niche in the market that needs to be filled. <laughs> well, you get to use Mattox in the uh, in the One Ring anyway. That's a, like a unique weapon. That you yes. else, so why would you need a hammer? Yeah. You can always switch to yeah. To, to Mattox for your Warhammer need. <laughs> so, so I guess another part of the, this kind of evolution of the One Ring is, um, I think you're moving the timeline forward a little bit as well. And um, from certainly from the art stylings we've seen so far on the Kickstarter from the front page of stuff, it seems a little bit perhaps darker and uh, it feels more the One Ring than the Hobbit. If you know what I mean, I think the initial edition had, especially with Judge Hodgson's art and that kind of stuff, it felt a homely kind of Hobbity kind of. You got a bit of Hobbit, if you know what I mean. This feels a bit more, I don't yes. want to say grown up, if you know what I mean, but a bit more like the, the rings advancing or the, the, the necromancers sort of getting more of a grip and the darkness is starting to intercede more. Is that something in the game or is this, am I just imagining it from what I'm seeing? No, no, it's, it's. I mean, I cannot say it's 100% voluntary as a, as a choice because it was very organic, it was very easy. Um, we, I came on board with Free League with, asking them to have Alvaro Tapia on board for the drawings inside. He's the artist that worked, that made Trudman very popular. He's the guy that he has a... I, I think in some ways he's close to John Hansen from the point of view that he's very keen in in depicting anthropological and ethnographic details, mm -hmm. something that belongs to, to our world and our ancient past rather than just fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Martin Grip is the artist that is the in-house artist for for Free League. So it was them that said we can try and see what Martin Grip comes up with for the color plates for for the game. And I said, of course, he's welcome. And I'm hoping he will find his Tolkien vein. And in the end, I think it was the best choice possible because we needed to you know to have a, a sense of closure with uh, compared to first edition we changed company almost 10 years have passed uh, we needed to move on from many points of views uh, and that was that's probably the most readable statement that we could do that we that the that the game has changed and and so and and then there's also the fact that it's very uh, appropriate with the, the fact that we are now in Eriador, that now we're almost 50, uh, yeah 1546 yeah we're uh, almost 20 years later so um, we're going towards the War of the Rings so things are getting darker there was a there was a sort of a a sense of optimism right after death, the death of the dragon. And the opening of the borders in Wilderland. So having people that went abroad for the sake of going abroad and putting people that was estranged before back in contact. Right now, instead, we're in a moment where people is going to think, hmm, uh, there are dark clouds gathering. Something bad might be coming. And there must be some someone probably has to think about doing something about it. And so the illustrations are very much about that. Also the video they made for the, the for the Kickstarter is really I think it, it really establishes the, the mood for the game a lot. 
to to have that obity sense uh, we go back to the starter set yes that is included in <laughs> the starter set is all about that it's all about playing hobbits mm-hmm. uh, and since we're uh, i mentioned it it's uh, a weird weird uh, basically doing this to have a game that is easier to get into, but at the same time offers a distinct experience. It's something that is also more appropriate for younger players, possibly, but has uh, some nice touches there for the uh, the Tolkien enthusiast because we're playing with established characters. So you're playing with, with the backstory of characters that you can read in the appendixes and the in the first chapters of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that looks fun because that's something I've sort of done myself with the previous edition. You do like an old dwarf game or an old Hobbit game or something. Just so it's nice <laughs> to have that as a little. Certainly, for I think um, for taking the one ring to conventions, it's always um, thought I found it a little bit complicated for people who didn't know anything about it to, to explain and get a, a, a good feel for the game. In four hours, could sometimes be a little bit challenging. So um, it's nice to have a starter set and something that's um, like quite cute in a way, or like, you know, easy to grasp the idea of. In terms of your old hobbits together, yeah. and you're all from the book, you can spot your names and things like that. I think that's a really nice touch. Yeah, and I also hope that people will find it exciting to possibly to use. There's the potential to be able to play with Bilbo Baggins, <laughs> play with his magic magic ring. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the uh, potential Easter eggs that you can find in the adventures. So. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Yeah, we're having having some fun with that. So, um, are there any sort of we always ask guests this, but are there any of the games or things that you've been looking at as well that you found interesting recently? I don't know how much time you have to play other things or read other products or anything. No, it doesn't have to be again. Necessarily, it could be some other media. But is there anything that's uh, caught your eye recently that that's perhaps interesting for our listeners? Yeah, uh, I mean, I was looking there because I have on my shelf the uh, the Bison game from from, from Freely. Uh, I probably didn't say it here, but I came to Free League as a fan. Uh, I was playing their games. And so uh, I really, I actually met them in in Essen during the Spiel Mm -hmm. uh, Fair. And I went to the booth to to say hi because I wanted to to congratulate them on the games because they were really designing games to my liking and with very much sharing the same design principles. So uh, because I was a player of Forbidden Lands, for example. And and Bison is fantastic because it's a it's a game that uh, has everything in, in, in between its, its covers. Uh, it's, it has character creation. It has structure for the stories. It has uh, this idea. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. You are, yeah. You are like uh, sort of supernatural investigators in in a in a sort of alternate uh, 18th century. 19th century and in Sweden and and so you're playing with folklore and, and supernatural stories with people that is gifted so you also have an insight of, of what what's going on and and I love the fact that you have a common lo- uh, place uh, you, you live in a castle that you are basically exploring while you grow up as a group uh, because it's part of the mechanics for advancement in in the uh, in the characters that it's tied to the place. Mm. It's a sort of a gourmet type of building that you you don't know exactly how it's it's done how how big it is. So 
So and that's that's really cool. That's something that I don't think it was done in some mainstream games to to work like that. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, I told them this at the time that we are designing a game for for Simon for uh, Cool Mini or not. That I I I started uh, working with them as a as a game developer and designer, and we're designing a game that has a similar premise. So to have all the characters being together and sharing a place mm. and because it's i've always been a big fan of this type of very narrow focus i remember a fantastic adventure for for a call of cthulhu that was made exactly by Pagan publishing that was was all set inside a submarine base uh, yes uh, grace under pressure grace, grace under pressure, pressure yeah, was the name yeah yeah, yeah. And I think that that's that's amazing, you know, when you when you have uh, a very limited uh, situation and every player, every character has its own role because you're not simply a character; you are the mechanic or you're maybe the the uh, the submarine pilot. So you have things to do that are part of your own of your day to day grind, and then something happens, and that's the way horror works best when you have a horror intruding in your day-to-day grind so yeah i think that bison has that quality alien is good but also going out of of the company i work for (laughs) 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 did you have to move everything around on your shelves so it can only be free league now in your your line of sight (laughs) yeah i'm surprised it's not behind you <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I'm I'm really starting to be a bit monothematic lately. I mean, I'm, I'm finding all the stuff I like in there. Uh, it, it's been a while. Yeah, I have lots of board games. I'm not here. Uh, I'm lucky to you know I'm lucky to do this full time. So we have a studio and we have a storeroom that is full of all the money I made with games spent in yeah, games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. It's a cycle. <laughs> Food's optional. You can come back for food anytime, can't you? <laughs> cycle the money back into meeples. That's what I say. <laughs> exactly. But I can't complain. I can't complain. I mean, I, there are much lousier jobs. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Right, uh, I think we're coming up close to an hour, so uh, we need to let you go soon. But um, are there any other uh, bits and pieces you want to tell us? Anything else you're working on, or perhaps stuff that's coming up in the future? Perhaps you know. But well, luckily, uh, I mean, we're since May probably we started a, a full collaboration with Simon, and this is being very very eye opening because uh, I I worked for almost. 30 years as a freelancer, as a full freelancer. And now working with a company of that size and that reputation is is incredible because you see that you can, uh, I can do what I did for, for limited projects on many things at the same time. So like helping out on fleshing something, the mechanics of a game or looking at the background of another. So it's, uh, it's almost incredible to, to see that it's possible that <laughs> there are companies that are companies doing that, and and Simon is really a sort of a machine uh, producing quality content and and getting better and better because in the beginning probably they were 
profiting from this great intuition they had in, in developing the market on Kickstarter because they almost invented it. They almost invented the, the Kickstarter model of, of publishing games and made games um, in Kickstarter become the, the probably the main, the hugest sector mm. in, in the whole platform. Uh, but they, they they invested a lot of what they made with Kickstarters, getting, bringing games on the market that were better and better because they had, for example, Eric Lang working for them for a long time and he designed some brilliant games like Rising Sun and Blood Rage and now the new one, Ankh. So it's, uh, it's really something that is fantastic to, to be able to to work side by side, to work on that type of project and possibly expand them. Uh, we did that with Zombicide. With Zombicide, we made Zombicide Chronicles. That is, it's interesting how role-playing games work compared to, to board games. Uh, Zombicide was already huge since many years uh, and was already developed in many, many different directions. But only when we worked on the role-playing game the game actually acquired depth uh, because it it was not needed for for a zombie killing type of game. You only had to 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 go with fast mechanics, cool graphics, cool flavor text, and stuff like that. Working on on the role playing game was was very nice because we had to look at that bring everything together, you know, internalize it, and then come out with something coherent that led you, that allowed you, the player, to, to do exactly what the designers of Zombicide are doing when they create missions. So, yeah, it was a fantastic exercise, and I really look forward to doing that again. <laughs> the downside of talking about what we do for a big company like that is that is that we cannot talk about future projects. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fuck, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> no, I'm sorry about that. There must be a shift for you though, from being a freelance designer where obviously you 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 know you've got colleagues and stuff, but to actually have designers on tap who are constantly coming up with ideas and you can bounce off and uh, people in different companies as well to get involved with. That's got to be good creatively and challengingly to give you something, an extra something to get your teeth into, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it's not very different, I think, because simply it's like uh, with a company like that, uh, you have, of course, contact with all the designers inside the company, mm -hmm. and there's quite a few. And so it's simply like we're in the same room together, even if, even if Cool Mini is a company that is spread all over the world. Right. We're, we're working with guys in Singapore, in Brazil, and in, in other places in Italy uh, and in, in the US. Uh, but I never had the, this level of interaction with, with other designers because uh, I think that me and Marco, my co-designer, we always enjoyed the fact that being already two people we didn't really need much uh, of an outside uh, balancing board, like, you know, uh, because we were already doing that. Mm -hmm. We already, we do that all the time. We work around the table, me on one side, Marcus on the other side, and we work individually on things, but we're on inside and whatever, whenever we need to, to have an immediate feedback on something, we just say, okay, listen to this. Uh, okay, okay, that's fine. And, and then it, so we always work like that. So I never 
We, of course, we also work with other people, but much less compared to other designers. There are designers in board games that worked with everyone, mm. and we didn't. And uh, and now this is changing quite a bit because, of course, the company is a, is a big attractor. So there is a lot of people and, and feedback and talent gathered in, 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 in projects. Cool. Well, um, the sands of time are against us, I'm afraid. So it's, uh, it's been a very quick hour. I'm sure we could talk for another one if we wanted to. Uh, but we, we best let you go. So thanks for being so generous with your time and coming on the show. It's been uh, good to speak to you. Thank you very much, guys. It was amazing. I mean, it's, it's fantastic to, to talk with someone like you that is so well. I mean, you know the game, you know the games. And, and so it's not simply like, you know, doing some marketing thing or it's talking to, to, to actual gaming enthusiasts. So, yeah, you're right. We could do this for hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on the One Ring so far. It, it, you don't need me to wish you luck. You don't Thank need anyone you. to wish you luck. It's all done. So, you know, may, may, <laughs> may it all continue to go as well as it started for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much.